Crossway Church Sermon Audio. My name is Steve Heitland. I'm one of the pastors here. We're very glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, you can take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6 as we continue our series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I do have just a couple announcements before we begin. One is, uh, you're probably aware that the deacons are heading up a project to uh, bless and care for the Dreegers. So as Valerie has gone through her heart transplant, we're looking to um, fix up especially their basement. They had some mold that needed to be abated and, and some other repairs to be done. And so they've been working on that. And there's been about 25 different folks who've pitched in to help. We're very grateful for that. We're aiming to get that done in August. We don't have a clear timeline yet for Valerie's return. We want that to be done so there's no mold, anything that would affect her health negatively as she returns, Lord willing. So uh, Andrew's saying they could use 65 to 80 people. So we need a, a push here at the end to get this done over the next four to six weeks. So if you're able to serve in any way, skilled or unskilled, uh, in these four to six weeks, you could uh, you should have gotten an email from the church that would have a sign-up genius, or you can contact Tom Ekman or Andrew O'Dell Tom is usually the tallest guy in any room. Andrew's not. Uh, we love him. But he's not the tallest guy. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. He's just not tall. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you're able to serve that way, we'd really appreciate it. Also, uh, we feel bad. Last week we forgot to announce the Bahamas team. So yesterday we had, I believe it was 16 people, leave here early in the morning to uh, fly down. They're at uh, the church there, Kingdom Life, serving. Doug's probably preaching right now. And then they'll be there all week uh, serving with the music camp. So we're going to pray for them in a moment. And then this Saturday, our Boston E-team is taken off. So if you're going to Boston, would you please just stand uh, where you are in your seat so we can see who all's going? All right. All right, you guys can be seated. These folks are going to serve our sister church there, King of Grace in Haverhill, Mass. Uh, we've been doing that for many years with their vacation Bible school. So please do keep both the, the Bahamas team and the Boston teams in your prayers over the next couple weeks. And let's pray for them now as we prepare to turn to God's word. Father, we thank you that you are this great an awesome God of whom we just sang, the, the God who, though our sins are many, your mercy is more. You have in your love sent your son for us, uh, that we would go from being your enemies to being your children, that we would go from under your wrath to in your favor, that we would go from condemned to righteous, and we thank you for these uh, folks who, have, who are serving, whether it's serving the Dreegers or serving the church in the Bahamas or going to serve the church in Boston. We pray that you would bless them, that you would encourage and sustain them as they look to proclaim your excellencies, as they look to uh, declare the gospel, the truth of your goodness to us in Christ. Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you sanctify them? Would you comfort them? Would you work through them? for your glory and for their good. 
And, and Father, as we turn now to uh, your word and to one of the most sobering stories in all of scripture, uh, we pray that you would work in us, that you would sanctify us, that you would open our eyes to Jesus, that we would see and know and love him more, that our, our sins, that we would take them to him, that we might be forgiven and stand in his righteousness. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What is faith? I think if you were to go out on the street and ask, say, 100 people that very question, there's a great chance that the, the majority idea that would come back is that faith is, is kind of an, an inexplicable and this subjective sense of trust in whatever you find to be fulfilling. So faith might be portrayed as a leap in the dark or, or some sort of irrational or mystical process. It's this very personal thing. And so to be a person of faith is to place this irrational trust in some power, perhaps some higher power, whoever that is and whatever that means for you. Now that is not, of course, how the, the Bible speaks of faith. So consider Hebrews 11, verses 6 to 7. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith here has two fundamental commitments. God is, and he's good. Or the language here in Hebrews 11, he exists and he rewards so faith here has absolutely nothing to do with looking within ourselves. It's not about taking a leap in defiance of the facts. It's not what's left over whenever science and reason have explained everything else. Faith is ultimately all about God and his goodness. It's the disposition of the heart that rests in the goodness of our God. And if you know Hebrews 11, you know the very first example that the author of Hebrews uses for faith. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The reason I'm starting with a focus on faith today is seen in these verses from Hebrews 11. We're going to be looking at one of the most famous stories in all of scripture, the story of Noah and his flood, and faith is a central theme to this story. Last week, Doug preached Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8, and today we're going to pick up where he left off in verse 9. We're going to go through the rest of chapter 6, through all of chapter 7, and through all of chapter 8, so we're going to cover the entirety of of the story of Noah's flood. And it's funny, people the world over are familiar with this story regardless of their religious beliefs. It's one of scripture's most famous pictures of the judgment of Almighty God. It's a story that has fascinated mankind throughout our history, launching many expeditions to find the final resting place of Noah's ark. It is the largest story by far in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, covering around a third of the Bible's account of the early history of man. And so Noah is, in, very, in many ways, the linchpin between Adam in the garden and Abram and the start as the father of the people of God in Genesis 12. 
Yet it may be for many of us that our repeated exposure to this story, having seen the flannel graphs as children and heard the tale many times, has produced an unhelpful familiarity, has made us almost nonchalant toward what it reveals. In this text, we are going to witness the mass extermination of humanity. All but eight persons. And we're going to witness the death of every living creature, save a few. And this act, this act of judgment is so profound, so thorough, so comprehensive that it just staggers the imagination. The scope of it is almost too much for us to wrap our heads around. And yet in one of the great ironies of, of modern life, this story is often used today in babies' nurseries, right, with smiling animals and happy rainbows, this picture of judgment. Perhaps that's something that needs to be thought through. So to read the story of Noah is to be confronted time and time again with two great themes, the steadfast faith of Noah and the furious wrath of Almighty God. We'll see Noah trusting God again and again throughout this passage in every way. And we'll see God pouring out his wrath in its fullness with terrifying ferocity. The story of Noah is the story of faith and furious wrath. So what do we get when we unite those two themes, faith and wrath? Said another way, what is the effect that this text is meant to produce in us, its readers? Think about it for a moment. The Lord, in his providence and wisdom, put the story of Noah in his word. Genesis, as a book, covers some thousands of years, right? Just thousands of years. And the story of Noah is fully four of the 50 chapters of Genesis, and the story of the flood is three of, four, of those four chapters. So this is an enormous amount of time and space devoted to just this one story. And we're going to find that this is a very intentionally structured story. It's been carefully arranged as a chiasm. And at the center of that story, that chiasm, is that intersection of faith and wrath. So what do we get when faith and wrath intersect? You get mercy. In fact, I think the only way that we can really understand mercy is to understand faith and wrath. Mercy is one of those deeply misunderstood biblical words. It's, we can often think of mercy as just you know, a wave of the hand, just kind of you know, forget about it, right? That's what God's saying. But that is most decidedly not mercy. Mercy is the reduction or even the elimination of consequences because those consequences have been borne by another. Mercy gives us what we do not deserve because someone else bore what he did not deserve. So I'm telling you at the outset what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the faith of Noah and we're going to see the wrath of God. And as those two intersect, we will find mercy. If we understand the evil of sin, then there's one correct response to this story. And that's to marvel at the mercy of the Almighty. The Lord put the story of Noah in Scripture for us to marvel at the mercy of the Almighty. So we're going to see how mercy rises like the tides through this tale in three steps this morning. And the first is mercy before 
judgment. And that's the remainder of chapter six. So let's read uh, Genesis six, verses nine and 10. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 6-9 repeats the formula that we've seen, the formula that's used throughout this book in introducing major sections with the phrase, these are the generations of. And we saw it in chapter 2, the generations of the heavens and the earth. We're going to see it again in chapter 10 with the sons of Noah and in the beginning of chapter 11 with Shem as it narrows down at the end of chapter 11 with Terah as we get to Abraham. Each major transition point in this book is marked by this formula. Uh, These are the generations of, from the Garden of Eden all the way up to Abram. So what do we learn about this man Noah here? Well, he's one of the most remarkably positive figures in all of Scripture. And there's three terms in particular that mark him. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. Noah was a man who feared the Lord. He was a man of integrity. He was above reproach. And that testimony is all the more remarkable when we remember the context of what he was living in. That the testimony that was recorded that Doug showed us last week in uh, Genesis 6-5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So all around Noah was just constant and unrelenting and comprehensive evil. And still, he stood righteous. Still, he was blameless. Still, he walked with God. Now, to say that Noah was righteous is not to say that he was sinless. He, too, was affected by the fall of Adam, just as we are. He was born with a sinful nature, just as we are. He was affected by total depravity, but clearly the Lord had worked in his life. He had saved him. He had regenerated him. He, he made him his son. And there's a couple important lessons for us in that. One is that the Lord's arm is never too short to save. So if literally the entire planet is wicked, the Lord can still save sinners. Right? That ought to give us hope. It ought to give us hope for ourselves, but it also give us hope for those that we love, those who feel like they are uh, irretrievably gone, who've turned their, their backs and their hearts against the Lord. His arm is never too short to save, and his arm is the only arm that can save. The second thing it teaches us is that God's people are actually righteous. Right? We're not sinless, but we are both counted righteous in Christ And we are being sanctified, we're being made righteous by the blood of Christ applied to our lives. So so we, we do need to have an appropriate appreciation for the magnitude of our sin, both the breadth and depth of our sin. But we 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 don't see the mercy of God if we don't do that. But we also need to have a clear hope that we can actually be and grow in righteousness. That we can be men and women of integrity. That we can be blameless before God. That we can walk with God by his grace. Not perfect, not sinless, but truly righteous by grace. But notice, no sooner do we see this really conspicuous righteousness of Noah here than we're again reminded of the absolute evil amongst which he lived. And looked at verses 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. When we consider that it was just four chapters ago that the Lord delightedly pronounced his creation as very good, this verdict is all the more remarkable. As Derek Kidner has pointed out, the Hebrew word for corrupted makes it plain that what God decided to destroy had been virtually self-destroyed already. That's the very nature of sin. Sin corrupts and it perverts, it, it twists and it destroys. So it's not that these people are thriving and flourishing apart from God, it's quite the opposite. They're already being destroyed by their wickedness, by being given over to sin. You know, the nature of sin is that its pleasures are always front-loaded, right? It's what's held out to us is the pleasure of sin. That's what makes it so enticing to us. But the, the cost of sin is always greater than we can imagine. And that's what's happening here. The Lord sees the true condition of man and, and, and he's had enough, right? Judgment is being announced. It's coming. It's fearsome. He says, I will destroy the earth. But then notice again how no sooner does the Lord announce this judgment than he also proclaims mercy. He gives Noah a command to make for himself an ark in verse 14. Here's the the means to survive this coming worldwide destruction. And the Lord gives him instructions. He says it's to be roughly 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, covered in and out with pitch, with three floors for the animals. And so I actually had my tape measure out yesterday. This building is 180 feet long. So from the wall behind me to the other end of the lobby is 180 feet. So two and a half times this building. This room's about 100 feet wide. So from that wall to roughly the stage is 75 feet. And from the floor to the peak is about 42 feet. So it's about the same. So something a little more narrow than this, two and a half times as long. That's the size of the ark. Uh, Why does the Lord give this command to Noah? Well, look at verses 17 and 18. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. All throughout these three chapters of six through eight, Noah's wife and his sons and his sons' wives are basically paper characters. They're in the story, but we're not told anything about their thoughts or or their deeds or what was going on in their hearts or how they interacted with Noah when this news came down. What we do see is that they're saved, and the reason seems to be that they belong to Noah. They're included in the mercy of the Lord because of Noah. Look at verse 18 again. The Lord will establish his covenant with Noah, and not only will Noah enter the ark, but all of the people the Lord has given him responsibility for. This is the first use of the word covenant in Scripture. There's a good reason to see Adam's relation with God in the garden as a covenant, but the word's not used there. The term, this is the very first time that the term is employed. And so it's important for us to recognize that this is our fundamental relation to God. 
We relate to God covenantally. This is a covenantal world. From beginning to end, the Bible is a covenantal story. The gospel only makes sense within the context of covenant. So the Lord made a covenant with Adam, the covenant head, that was broken by his disobedience. And the Lord Jesus was the head of a new covenant that was fulfilled by his perfect and entire obedience. And so by trusting in Jesus, we're rescued from the consequences of Adam's covenant breaking, which we entered by being born. We're born under Adam, under the covenant breaker. And we're brought into the rewards of Jesus' covenant keeping, which we enter not by birth, but by new birth, by regeneration and faith. And so this covenant that the Lord promises to Noah, which we'll see even more next week in Genesis 9, is part and parcel of how he deals covenantally with mankind throughout history and throughout scripture. Interestingly enough, given the genealogies that we saw in Genesis chapter 5, Noah is the first man born after Adam dies. So if you follow the, all the years of he was this old and he was born and then he died, Adam dies, the first covenant breaker dies, and God gives a new man to raise up as a new covenant that he'll use to save his people. So this is the mercy of God. The Lord's making promises to Noah that he will save him and all of his family. More than that, he'll save all the animals through his labors. The Lord is showing mercy to, Adam, to Noah and to his family and Noah receives that mercy through faith, through trusting God. He, he receives it through trusting the promises of God. That in many ways is the essence of faith. God makes a promise and we trust him and we apply that promise in our lives. John Calvin commenting on this passage said it this way, let us therefore know that the promises of God alone are they which quicken us, which make us alive and inspire each of our members with vigor to yield obedience to God. But that without these promises, we not only lie torpid in indolence, those are great words. Torpid means slow, indolence means laziness, right? We not only lie torpid in indolence, but are almost lifeless, so that neither hands nor feet can do their duty. So without God's promises, we are lifeless and lazy. But then God's promise comes. The word of the gospel comes and it, it quickens us. It makes us alive. It inspires us to yield obedience to God vigorously. And we see that here in verse 22. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That refrain is actually repeated several times in chapter 3. And so we see the relationship between faith and obedience is very clear. Faith precedes obedience. It comes before obedience. We obey God because we believe. Now there's an awful lot. I don't know if we realize that. If you look at verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What did God command him to do? To build this enormous ark and to make provision for the flood. So he, he builds this 450-foot-long ark. He, he completes it. He covers it with pitch. He puts in the three floors. He, he, he had to fell and fit the trees. He's working for perhaps 100 years. All right, we don't know for sure, but it, it says that Noah was 500 years old at the end of uh, Genesis 5. He's 500 years old when he has his sons. He's 600 years old when the flood comes. So for 
Perhaps that whole time, he's building this enormous and unprecedented structure that surely drew the attention of his neighbors, and no doubt not just their attention, but their ridicule, and yet he persisted in faith. He believed God. He did all that he commanded. In 2 Peter 2, Noah is called the herald or the preacher of righteousness, and so it, it, it could well be that he's declaring to his neighbors the righteousness of God, but even just his life itself, even just this enormous task that the Lord has given him is declaring to his neighbors the righteousness of God. As we saw in Hebrews 11 at the outset, as Noah, he constructed the ark, the author says, in reverent fear. And then it says, and through that, he condemned the world. So the very fact of Noah's existence and obedience was condemnation to his neighbors. It was hateful to the world because he represented accountability before God. That's always hateful to those who want to reject the creator. So here, before the the judgment arrives in fact, it's been foretold as a promise. And Noah believes God and therefore he responds appropriately to this promise. Mercies announced to him and his family and he believes and obeys so that he can receive that mercy from the Lord. And don't we see that so often in scripture where the Lord announces judgment beforehand. Sometimes for years and years and years he's announcing judgment. And in that announcement he is proclaiming his mercy to those who repent, to those who trust Christ and turn to him. If they'll just listen to what he's saying. So that's the question for us, right? Are we listening? Do we hear the call? Do we recognize the call in Genesis 6? The Lord's mercy is being published to us. The Lord is merciful to those who rebel against him. And so we need to marvel at the mercy of the Almighty, which brings us to the second point, which is mercy amidst judgment, chapter 7. So let's read the entirety of Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. 
The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. One of the most striking features of this chapter is its formality. There's a a clear structure and themes are repeated multiple times. And and what we're witnessing is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. So the Lord foretold judgment. He revealed that to Noah. Noah responded with faith. He gave Noah time to make the provisions that he needed to. He did all that the Lord commanded. And now the Lord executes his promised judgment. This passage is repetitive and deliberate. It's not the most exciting reading. It's making clear that the promise that the Lord had made at the beginning of this account in chapter 6 is now being fully accomplished. Judgment has come. All flesh has died. We can see that formality and pattern in how chapters 7 and 8 use numbers. They're clearly very intentionally arranged. And so this is one example of chiasm in the passage. Uh, We see first that there are seven days of waiting for the flood, then another seven days waiting for the flood, then 40 days of actual flooding, then 150 days of the waters prevailing and triumphing. And then we'll see in the next chapter 150 days of the water waning and then a 40-day wait and then a seven-day wait and then a seven-day wait. That mirroring, that chiasm is pointing at something in between 7.24 and 8.3 is the very heart of the passage that we'll get to in the next point. There's other ways that this is structured that we just don't have time to go into. But this, this flood account is very thoughtfully and intentionally arranged. It's the Bible's fullest picture of judgment. The judgment and wrath of Almighty God poured out on the entire earth, all of mankind, wiped out. This is the fullest judgment that the Bible gives us, this side of Jesus' second coming. So look again at the scope of what was accomplished. We already read this, but listen to these words, verses 21 to 23. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And Jesus makes the connection between this and his final judgment for us in Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The temptation we have is to 
sanitize this account, to move quickly past it, to think that somehow this was just an Old Testament phenomenon, that things have changed. The truth is that this picture of judgment, as fearsome as it ought to be, is actually just a taste. It's not the fullness of the judgment of come. This is the symbol that points to something greater and fuller. This judgment cost every living creature on the earth its life. The judgment to come will settle the eternal destiny of every soul forever. And that judgment will be on the basis of what we have done. Solomon teaches us as much in Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Part of what's terrifying about the verdict of God in Genesis 6 is that that it isn't just a response to our deeds. It's not just a response to what we do. It goes much deeper than that. Do you remember the language? The Lord sent the flood because every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So it wasn't just what people did. It's what they thought and what they intended to do. When people, well-meaning, say, it's okay, the Lord looks at your heart. That shouldn't be comforting. (laughs) Biblically, that should be terrifying. It's bad enough that the Lord knows everything that I do. He knows everything I feel and everything I think and everything I will. That's terrifying. If we're tempted to think that this judgment is somehow disproportionate, it shows we don't appreciate the magnitude of the sinfulness, the evil of the human heart. Instantaneous death is the just and good penalty of God for human sin. Eternal conscious torment in hell is the just and good penalty of God for human rebellion. So much of our our natural response to these truths is to attempt to minimize the wickedness of our hearts and to explain a way to somehow rationalize or justify why we do the evil that we do and ironically why it's not actually that bad in the first place. But the flood of Genesis 7 is the Bible's clear-eyed response to such justifications. This is what human sinfulness deserves. We explain it away at the peril of our eternal souls. Consider what happens here. The fountains of the deep are opened and the windows of the heavens are opened. This is clearly the undoing of creation. In Genesis 1-7, we saw how the Lord separated the waters above from the waters below. Here he's reuniting them. There it was creation to bring order and purpose. Here it's decreation, it's uncreation, it's destruction. He's undoing all that he had created. And we'll see the implications of that more in chapters 8 and 9. And yet, even here in the midst of the most gruesome punishment of mankind in Scripture, there are still clear and resounding notes of grace. All of mankind dies, but not quite all. Recall how the chapter ends, verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. Everyone else was blotted out and that's such an evocative phrase. It's repeated three times here in verse four and verse 23, blotted out, wiped away, removed from existence. But Noah and his family were saved. The Lord had in his mercy made full provision 
for those who look to him for salvation. And that salvation was, as it must always be, entirely accomplished by the Lord himself. He announced the plan, he made the provisions, he saw them through to the end. And then consider again what the ark represented. It's just this enormous lifeboat in the midst of complete and entire destruction. So all around them is death. But within the walls of the ark is safety and life. And in 1 Peter 3, Peter compares the ark to baptism. Salvation in scripture is always salvation through judgment. And so in baptism, we die with Christ, right? We identify with him in his death to be raised to newness of life. And in the Lord's Supper, we receive the body of Christ because he was broken and the blood that was poured out for us. The sacraments are pictures of salvation through judgment because Jesus was judged and slain in our place. We receive life and righteousness and all the rewards through him. So the sacraments are not primarily about you proclaiming anything to the world and they're not a a proclamation of God's sentimental love towards you. They are this bracing clear-eyed depiction of salvation that has come at great cost through terrible, terrible judgment. The judgment of God, born by the Son of God, so that we can become sons of God and receive the mercy of God. As I was studying this passage this week, it did occur to me that just as in Noah's ark, eight persons were saved, which Peter says is a picture of baptism, So also last week here, eight persons were baptized in the providence of God. I have no idea what that means other than to say that God loves to delight us, right? He loves to show himself good at every turn and in unexpected ways. We also see here how even though the Lord gave Noah instructions for building the ark and Noah had to build it, the actual salvation it accomplished was still entirely dependent on the Lord. So consider the size of the door that had to be cut, this hole in the side of the ark, right? They had to have this enormous door to let the animals in, as Calvin wrote. That door must have been large, which could admit an elephant, right? It's a good point. So with a door that large, you have at least two problems, right? One is, okay, we all get in. Now, how are we going to close that thing? And the second is, how are we actually going to seal it and make it watertight? And I think verse 16 answers that question definitively for us. It says, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door. The Lord made it watertight. It was never about Noah's superior engineering. So Genesis 7 shows us very clearly both the righteous wrath of God and the redeeming mercy of God. All of the creatures outside of the ark were wiped away. The breath of life is gone. They're blotted out in a fearsome act of judgment that is just and good. They received what they deserved. None of them will be able to lay a charge of God. That was not fair. No, that was justice. And all the creatures inside the ark were saved. They were spared in an act of mercy that is both just and good. They they did not receive what they deserved, but instead received the mercy of God because what they deserved would one day be paid by another. So we should marvel at the mercy of the Almighty. And that brings us to our third and final point, mercy after judgment. Genesis 8 begins with four words 
that lie at the very heart of this passage and at the center of the, the chiasm of how this account is structured. These words say, serve as the pinnacle of the mercy of God here. But God remembered Noah. Now, whenever scripture speaks of God, it's accommodating itself to our humanity. The Lord's, he's so transcendent, he's so other than us that there's always this susceptibility to distort who he is. Calvin used to say that, the, that scripture speaks to us with a lisp, like, like you talk to a baby, right? Trying to explain something to someone who can't quite understand. So when Genesis 8.1 says that the Lord remembered, we're tempted to misinterpret that like something we would do, right? I was busy, I got distracted, then I remembered, oh, Noah, right? I gotta take care of him. That's clearly not what this verse means. It's not that the Lord forgot Noah and then remembered. It's actually describing the action of the Lord from the human perspective. The flood was ongoing and destructive and in the midst of it, Noah experienced the remembrance of the Lord. Derek Kinder helps us to understand what this term means. When the Old Testament says God remembered, it combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. Faithful love and timely intervention. You think of the psalmist saying, according to your love, remember me. So to say that the Lord remembers is to express a covenantal idea. Faithful love, hesed, is a remembering love. It's a love that cannot forget the beloved because we're written on our hands. He's committed to our good. In Genesis 19, the Lord remembers Abram and therefore Lot is saved from the destruction of Sodom. In Genesis 30, the Lord remembers uh, Rachel and he opens her womb. And we see this again and again throughout scripture. So at the very pinnacle of the judgment of God, when his wrath has been entirely poured out on the earth, uh, he remembers Noah in the ark. And then in a scene reminiscent again of the creation account of Genesis 1, he makes a wind to blow, right? Remember the, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters here? Spirit, wind, that word is interchangeable, is blowing over the face of the waters. He closes the fountains of the deep. He closes the windows of the heavens and the waters recede. They recede over 150 days, right? And the ark comes to rest. And then the rest, most of chapter 8, contains another highly structured account detailing the waiting of Noah. And that, that's one particular application of faith that we see again and again throughout this passage is how much Noah waited, right? Even they get shut up in the ark and they wait a week for the water to come. So consider the faith-filled patience of this man. He labors for who knows how many years to build the ark. He spends half a year within it as the waters grow and grow. He's locked in with seven other people and hundreds of animals. And then he spends another half year within it waiting for the waters to recede. He had the promise of God to be sure. And he spent a very long time just waiting. He literally has nowhere to go. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of God. You ever feel like the Lord has hemmed you in? There's nowhere you can go, right? Not without denying him. And you're just waiting. And you're just waiting. How we wait reveals what we believe about the promises of God. 
We must wait with faith because the promises of God are always true, right? That's so often right at the crux of faith because faith says God is and he's good. And so often in our lives, circumstances say either God's not here or God's not good or both. Therefore, forget about God and I'm gonna go do what I wanna do. Faith says, yeah, my circumstances might, might be horrible. They might be terrible. It might be the, the worst news I could imagine. And yet over and above that all is the God who is unfailingly good, who doesn't change, whose promises and purposes are always fully accomplished. Therefore, I will hope in him. I will wait for him, right? You think of Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That is waiting in faith. When we do that, when we affirm God is and he's good, we magnify him. That is a supernatural act of worship. That is not our natural disposition. That's God's spirit at work within you. When you get the news, the the horrendous news that rocks your world, and you say God is here and he's good, you magnify him. Because you're saying God is more valuable to you than than your health, than your financial well-being, than your your, uh, peace of mind, than whatever's going on in your world. God is more valuable than any of that. Therefore, I will hope in him. That fight of faith is right at the heart of what we we do every day. And we see Noah as as one of the Bible's premier examples of that. He ends up waiting combined over a year for the flood to rise and fall. Here in chapter 8, after the 150 days, he waits another 40 days and he releases a raven and he releases a dove and that dove returns and then he waits another seven days and the, the dove comes back with a, an olive leaf. That's the first sign of life. And then he waits another seven days and the dove doesn't return. And then the Lord commands him in verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So Noah and his family and these creatures have in different ways found salvation through judgment. They've endured the waters of the flood. They've been restored to an earth wiped clean. Everything and everyone that they knew is gone. Think about that. We don't know where they lived before the flood. We don't know exactly where they landed after the flood. We don't know what kind of distance there may have been in between. It must have been just an immensely disorienting experience. And yet Noah, righteous Noah, blameless Noah, who, the, the one who walks with God, responds perfectly in this moment. He recognizes the magnitude of the judgment that they just endured, that the earth just endured, he, which means he recognizes the magnitude of the mercy that he and his family just received. You know, I, I was, as we were singing this morning, I'm, that song, I'm, I'm hearing that song through the lens of the story. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more, right? And you know, that's, if you think, you know, I don't know that I fully appreciate the mercy of God, which who of us fully appreciates the mercy of God, right? How do we come to appreciate the mercy of God more? It's by seeing our sins accurately, 
for what they are. Right? You can pray and say, Lord, show me. Show me my heart. Show me my sinfulness. And then you don't stop there because that's, that's the path to condemnation, introspection, all kinds of unhelpful things. You then take those sins to the Savior who died for those sins that you would know the, the forgiveness, the pardon, the love, the mercy that he procured for you. And you love him more because your sins are many, but his mercy is more. It's more than your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. If there's someone here today who feels like, you know what, you don't understand. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand what I've done. If you knew what I've done, <laughs> you wouldn't have anything to do with me. If you take your sin to the Savior, his mercy is more than your sin. There is no sin that is greater than the mercy of our God for those who turn to him in faith. Jesus made full provision, not for his friends, for his enemies. For his enemies. His mercy is more. And you have to think that Noah had a fresh appreciation of that having endured the judgment of the flood having waited and waited as the the promises of God are being poured out and fulfilled right and then in verse 20 what does he do then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma the Lord said in his heart I will never again curse the ground because of man For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So Noah made a sacrifice and the aroma was pleasing to the Lord. And again, we have an echo of the first family, right? The entire world was like Cain. Their behavior was wicked and they endured punishment and wrath. Noah is like righteous Abel. He makes a pleasing sacrifice to God. And the name Noah is quite similar in Hebrew to the word for pleasing. And both of those words carry a connotation of rest. And so those who have trusted in the Lord, whose sins have been atoned for, find in him a sweet and enduring rest. There's rest in, our, in the mercy of our Savior. This encounter with God also helps us to understand why there's a disparity in the animals, right? Why did the Lord have Noah bring seven of the clean animals and seven of the birds and two of the unclean? It's because of this need for sacrifice. While the earth may have been wiped clean, the heart of man was not. The creation was still fallen and as long as sin remains, the need for sacrifice remains. We see that in verse 21 when the Lord says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is ominously similar to the verdict of 6.5 and tells us that even here, right, on on the other side of the earth being wiped clean, on the other side of God's judgment against the entire world, the problem of sin has not yet been solved, right? This sacrifice, as pleasing as it was to the Lord, did not pay the price for Noah's sins. But what we do see is more mercy We're going to get into this more next week in chapter 9. But there's a promise here of common grace whereby the Lord will uphold the normal functioning of the world until the day of final judgment. 
So he promises to never again strike down every living creature. He promises to make seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night to continue and not cease. What many call the laws of nature are actually far from that. The sun rises every morning because the Lord wills it and commands it. Again, he says, run your course through the heavens as he delights in the goodness of his creation and and upholding the universe by the word of his power, by the promise that he made to Noah and to us, to all of his descendants. We're all here because the Lord has been faithful to this promise to Noah. Here probably some 4,500 years later, this promise that he made to Noah is being fulfilled. And this mercy, this particular mercy, is not just for those who love and fear the Lord. The Noahic covenant affects every creature in the world. It's foundational for the continued existence of the world. It doesn't depend on any obedience on the part of mankind. It's an unconditional, unilateral promise, a gift of God's goodness to his creation. But to say it's unconditional and unilateral is not to say that we can or should take it for granted. As with every good thing in this life, we must see our, our very existence, the, the normal course of the seasons and the, of seed and harvest and every other blessing in life, as provided for us by our good God. We should see these as acts of his mercy for which we should be grateful and we should worship him. I mentioned at the beginning the the two great themes that we would see, the faith of Noah and the wrath of the Lord. And I think we've seen them both time and again through this account of the Lord's fearsome judgment. And when we take those two themes together, when, when faith and wrath intersect, we've seen mercy. The Lord's been abundantly merciful to his people. So how should we then respond? Well, we should marvel. We should be grateful. We should recognize that even though we deserve no good thing, our lives are filled with good things that have come to us by the undeserved mercy of our God. So the proper response to mercy is worship from a grateful heart. It's a deeper trust in the Lord because we've tasted and seen that he's good. What, what mercy doesn't respond, what it doesn't produce as a response is the debtor's ethic, right? The Lord's done so much for me, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life looking to pay him back, right? To, to, to even try to do that is to show again, we, just, we, we don't understand the depth of our sinfulness, right? We don't pay the Lord back. We don't get out of debt. We just go deeper and deeper and deeper into his debt, Right? The only way to pay the debt of our sins is to suffer the wrath of the Almighty. But because God is, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, rich in mercy and great in love, he has made provision so that we don't have to die under his wrath. He, he made provision by sending his son to die under his wrath for the sins of his people. Jesus bore the wrath of God for the people of God, for for everyone who would trust in him. He he didn't bear God's wrath for those who would reject him. That wrath remains. If if you don't trust in Christ, you will bear the penalty of your sins. It's inescapable. Someone is going to bear the penalty of your sins. It's either you or the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you reject that merciful and atoning sacrifice, you will pay for it. But if you turn to him with faith, your sins are forgiven. You're given the gift of his righteousness. You're welcome into his happy presence 
as Paul says in the pastorals, the happy God, the delightful God, you're welcomed into his delight-filled presence forever. No wrath remains. Right? We've just seen this amazing picture of God's wrath poured out on the Savior for his people. Noah passed through the waters of judgment in safety because he trusted in the God who saves sinners. And in this ark, we have a picture of the saving work of Jesus Christ. To come to Jesus is to find shelter from the wrath of God. To meet Jesus is to meet the mercy of God. To trust in Jesus is to be delivered through the waters of judgment and to pass safely to the other side where we receive the rest that God provides for all who turn to him with faith. So marvel at the mercy of the Almighty. Let's pray. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.